welcome to Dream Nation. I'm your host, Yulia, and today I'm starting off the podcast by telling you to go see Wonder Woman. No, this is not a product placement. Uh, Warner Brothers did not pay me to say this. I went to see the film a few weeks ago and I loved it. I wish I saw this movie growing up as a little girl. It would have just made me very proud and very excited. It's a wonderful, wonderful film, beautifully directed by Patty Jenkins. I actually teared up when Gal Gadot ran into battle because it represented so many different things for so many different women. Gal Gadot with her hair flowing. When she was on the island, her hair was kind of braided and restrained, which is a metaphor in itself. And now she's here in this real world and her hair is flowing and she's fierce and she's sexy and she's discovering her powers. She's running through no man's land and that's a place that no man can cross, but she's a woman so she can cross it. But I don't want to spoil the whole entire movie for everyone. It was just incredible. And what I loved most about it is that Gal Gadot was five months pregnant while filming the movie. And I think that sends a huge message to every producer, every person holding the creative strings and the financial strings in every industry who thinks that pregnant women cannot compete at a large scale. This is a giant message to the whole entire world saying that women can compete when they're pregnant. Women can do incredible work when they are mothers as well and um, it's all about giving an opportunity to a really talented person and letting them do what they're really good at doing and i actually get a little choked up talking about it because i think it's a topic that a lot of women deal with and especially that scene with gal gadot running into battle that represents her running into battle for all of us that is wonder woman blazing the trail for all of us female creatives out there and for all women actually out there battling whatever they do on a daily basis. And what I also loved about the movie, I'm getting a little choked up, is that Patty Jenkins took time off apparently to be with her family. Correct me if I'm wrong, the last movie she directed was Monster, which was incredible. And since then, I guess she was just enjoying time with her family and she was enjoying being a mother. And I find that to be incredible because it is such a privilege in this day and age to be able to actually stay home and be a parent. That's a whole entire different conversation today, but what I really love about Patty Jenkins is that she sent a huge message to the studio saying, hey, look at me. I can do whatever I want, I can take time off, and I can still create incredible, incredible work if I am given the chance to do so. She can compete, and she can take time off, and she can come back. and that is the ultimate message going out into the world that women can do anything if we are given the chance and all we need is for more studios for more agencies for more producers for more people to be able to give us that chance and we as women have to give other people including women definitely women a chance to be able to compete and do incredible work Oh, I got a little (laughs) choked up there. Our guest today on the show is Heather Fink. She's a director, actor, writer, incredible woman all around. And I am so glad to have her on the show. And I'm really glad that Wonder Woman came out around this time because it's a perfect, perfect podcast exploring all of these different topics about women and film and diversity and I really hope you enjoy the podcast and I also want to tell you about my Dream Nation Festival coming up in September in Bushwick, Brooklyn on September 8th and 9th and it's going to be amazing. I can't tell you about who the sponsors are, can't tell you about who's speaking there yet because we're still getting the contracts together and sometime at the end of June, probably mid-July, we're going to start advertising it everywhere. You're going to see posters for it. 
and we have incredible speakers, incredible, incredible sponsors. It's going to be a two-day festival helping people get their ideas off the ground because a lot of people have an idea for a project but they don't know how to do it. Everything from branding, from design to PR, how to build a community, how to build a business plan, all those things are really important and we're going to give you a chance to come in for the day, uh, network with a lot of incredible people and learn new things that will hopefully get you to the next level, get you to get your ideas off the ground. And the festival actually kicks off with a short film festival promoting women in diversity-led shorts that I'm putting on as well. It's going to be in partnership with the Bushwick Film Festival. The female, um, it's, it's, the CEO is incredible. Uh, the people involved with the Bushwick Film Festival are incredible. We're in talks with them. I'm really excited for them. They've been doing it for 10 years and they have a lot of really, really incredible films. We're going to have a panel, hopefully, speaking about women and diversity as well. Uh, check out their website and also sign up for dreamnation.io uh, to get updates and email newsletters. Uh, we're going to have tickets available soon so you can tell your friends and follow us at Dream Nation Love on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. I'm going to go because I just got really choked up talking about Wonder Woman because it is probably like the most amazing film made this year. So enjoy the podcast. Tell your friends about Dream Nation. I'm here today with Heather Fink, who is a director with a comedy background, which she honed performing stand-up, sketch, and improv. She went through the NYU grad film program and in 2016 participated in the Sony Pictures Television Diverse Directors Program. She currently pays the bills as a sound person, most recently working on Marvel's Daredevil and Baz Luhrmann's The Get Down. Heather has completed post-production on her first feature film as a writer-director called Inside You, and she recently directed the indie TV pilot Urban Teach Now for writer-producers SJ and Ginny, which was an official selection at the NYTV Fest and ITV Fest in October 2016. Thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. So I start out my podcast by asking every guest, what was your dream as a kid? Actually, since my earliest memory, I had an instinct to perform and write comedy. Whether it was in third grade, I did my very first stand-up comedy show, and I just knew in somehow, in some way, I wanted to get my voice out there and make people laugh. And I think part of it had to do with not seeing my voice out there, not seeing a voice like mine represented. You know, all the representations we see of women in film and TV, especially, you know, I was born in 81. Um, in the 80s, representations of women were uh, I mean, I can just only imagine how bad they used to be, but I, I always just think about the woman being the person in the locker room having her towel ripped off and screaming, um, and that that's what a woman is. Yeah, I guess I've always had a dream of like, well, I like to make jokes and I like to make mischief. Can I exist in the world? Is there a place? So part of it is making jokes and getting my comedic voice out there. Um, of course, what I want to do now is a lot more pronounced, and I always had a proclivity towards making film, but I think also that I have, because you're making me think about childhood memories, I never was one of the girls who were afraid to raise their hand in class. I was never afraid. I was always speaking out. I was always raising my hand. And I think I feel that I'm not an exception. I think that all women have that inside of them. And there's certain things in our world that suppress that. And if I have that, I want to encourage other women to have that. So I have a very big feminist agenda. Yeah, we all have to raise our hands. Even if people tell us to sit down or 
put our hands down, we have to keep those hands raised up high and we have to speak louder. Absolutely. And then when you see that someone else has a voice that wants to be heard and you're a person who doesn't have a hard time raising your voice, then I guess I, I want to do whatever I can to encourage other people to speak up and speak out. So that routine going back to third grade, did you write it or did you just improv it? <laughs> I did. I, well, I remember in third grade, I especially honed my voice as a little burgeoning comedian. Actually, even in preschool, I remember I kept making jokes. I was put in this special early reading class as like a reward. And then I kept drawing like for the people in the book to say funny things. I was like drawing in there. And so I got kicked out of the early reading class and put in the later reading class. So it was always there, but in third grade, I would have a different character for each day of the week. And the only ones I remember still are like, one day of the week I was a Fisher Price kid, or another day of the week I was a California raisin. And I would like pull my hood of my, I had this navy blue sweatshirt over my head and I'd be like, I'm a raisin, I'm a raisin, which is my impression of a raisin. <laughs> I mean, these are things that were funny to me in third grade, but, um, but yeah, I don't remember the jokes that were told. I don't even know what I thought stand-up comedy was, but during recess, everyone pulled out their carpet squares and, I performed for them. That's amazing. So, yeah, yeah. I would say it's consistently been something. Like, I hear some people were like, I think I might get into comedy or whatever. If I fell into it. I'm like, I've been wanting this my whole life, and I'm going for it, and I'm still trying. So I don't know what it's like to not want to do this. Well, you're doing it. It's not like you're wanting to do it. You've already been doing it. Thank you. I mean, I'll never feel like I'm there yet, I guess. Like there's occasionally, there's so many instances in life where I feel like a nobody and I don't matter. And I mean, I especially feel that on set, I earn my money as a union sound person. I'm a boom operator in television shows. And one of the things you need to do as a crew member is to be quiet and be out of the way so that the creatives do their work. And I understand that's important. When I direct, everyone on set has their opinion of the scene. And if you heard it from everybody, you couldn't possibly do your creative work. And the actors certainly don't want to hear it from anyone but the director. So I get why that's important. But I sit there with my opinions and ideas. I mean, I worked on a show that had controversy recently for being um, racist. And I felt it on set. And I would have loved to speak up about what I was seeing. But it's not my place. You have to know when to keep quiet, and that's the hardest part about speaking out and being a woman who speaks yeah. out, right? You have to know when to hold your tongue, and you got to know which battles to fight. Absolutely, you have to choose your battles. I remember feeling that in college, especially when my feminist voice was getting more and more intense, that I can't be that angry and upset about everything because it's going to drive you insane. And it's going to alienate people, too, and you need to make allies. So it's, it's really yeah. hard. It's a balance. I mean, I've come on the other side of it, too, where I feel more recently to be, I need to be louder as a feminist. Um, and it's really cool to finally see this generation of young women calling themselves feminists and to have a Beyonce calling herself feminist. And we didn't have that before. So that was real. That's great. We didn't. I had a feminist art magazine in 1999. We were the original artsy. And then we, it's a long story, 2001 happened. We lost our funding. And then artsy.net relaunched. But they kind of were, they didn't have the feminist agenda. They were still selling art. But I remember I organized a feminist community and I was dealing with those issues in 1999 because a lot of women were like, well, I'm a woman and I'm supportive of other women, but I don't like that word. And we're like, well, we're yeah. redefining that word. Jane Magazine, everybody's redefining it. And now people are more open to it. I think the generation is just more open to it. 
Yeah, it, it is strange. I was actually, you know, you look at random things on Facebook and there was this ad for a tool set for Father's Day and there were a lot of women commenting, well, I might like that for Mother's Day. And there were a number of commenters saying, I'm no feminist, but I might like those tools for myself. And I'm like, yeah, you probably are a feminist because there's that whole thing that feminist just means women being treated as human beings. It's very simple, but I don't know what they mean. What do these women mean by, by speaking up and saying, hey, I want tools also, even though I'm a woman, and that they want to say, but I'm no feminist. Like, they're afraid to be whatever that is. Well, they're afraid to be that scary image of feminists who are like, I think there's a misrepresentation of feminists out there who are like very aggressive, unshaved, almost like women that might demasculate men in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, I think any of these character characterizations of what a feminist, a nightmare feminist is, actually is nothing to be that afraid of anyway. Mm -hmm. So what if a woman doesn't shave her armpits? Like, I mean, that's not what most feminists are, but either way, the feminist nightmare to them is like not even that threatening. It's just a loud woman with hairy underarms, I guess. Like, what's the big fucking problem? Well, a woman with opinions who wants things is a very, very dangerous thing. Ugh. Anyway, it's gross. Because it means you have to compromise, right? So we have to just, we have to ask for our own tool sets and we have to say I'm a feminist and I want a tool set and give it to me. And if I want it in pink or in blue, whatever, just, just give me a freaking tool set. Mm. <laughs> but, um, okay, so to come back to even film, you've directed over 35 comedy shorts, attended the NYU film program, and in 2016 completed the Sony Pictures Television Diverse Directors Program. I've got like 3,000 questions about all those okay. things alone. But, I'm gonna narrow it back because you have a humongous resume. What is next for you? So I just finished uh, the post-production on my first feature film, Inside You, which is a comedy about a couple that switches bodies after a night with a magic sex toy. So it's a sex comedy and I made it completely independently and I've been trying to get into festivals and I haven't been getting into festivals, which is really frustrating and it could be a combination of reasons. The first and foremost reason is that there's not really names or famous people and even in festivals nowadays, you have names. So that's been really hard, uh, but you know, I just didn't get names. It's a $100,000 movie, so uh, you know, the budget was too low perhaps to get names. And also the other thing is that the content is risque. It's a sex comedy. It also involves body switching, which was a hard thing to get names to want to pretend to be a woman, to want to pretend to be a man the whole time, a man to want to pretend to be a woman the whole time. It was a hard sell with agents. Um, and also that I was only the top thing that anyone got paid in this film per day was $150. And it takes three weeks of someone's life to do it. So anyway, I ended up acting in it, but I'm trying to get it out there and I'm considering different methods of distribution. I just finished the trailer and I really want to get it out there and I want to get it out there any day. However, um, I sort of want to have some sort of PR messaging. And here's an interesting thing. I tried to see if I could hire a PR person to do PR for my movie, but since it doesn't have names and it didn't get into a festival, they don't know what to do with that. And so uh, I said, well, do you have any junior people at your PR firm that, that you know, does film? So I don't want just any PR person. I do want someone who knows the film industry and film PR. Otherwise, I'm just as good figuring it out for myself which is what I'm going to end up doing. Um, but I basically was even turned away from being able to hire a PR person. So I'm figuring out the messaging and I'm going to launch the trailer publicly soon. So I want people to start talking about it and sharing it. I was mulling different ideas like, oh, maybe I need to prove that people want to see it. So 
you know, maybe they can retweet for, yes, I want to see this, trying to mull over how can I get people to say they want to see this, because that will both help. I'm going to do a digital distribution where I'm going to try to submit to sites like Netflix and Amazon, etc. And you can't submit directly, so you have to go through. I'm, I think I'm going to end up using Distriber, which is a company that's respected by independent filmmakers. Uh, it's pretty hands-on. and. Uh, I think in order to make, I still need to do my own, they won't do for me as far as making the film seem appealing. I need to provide, you know, a press kit and posters and, all, and a great trailer. Which I, all costs money. Yeah, it does. I just, I just paid someone to edit that trailer and I've pay, been paying for it by, you know, working insane hours as a boom operator for TV shows. And... Um, have you thought about crowdfunding another campaign to do the PR for it? No, I, I can't crowdfund be, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I did crowdfund initially for the production, but I feel like you only have one ask from the people in your life. I, and in order to crowdfund, you do need to know some people who ahead of time who you think are going to give money. And I don't think you get two asks. And I don't think you get double sympathy. And I don't want that from the people in my life. And I don't know people with that much money anyway. So I don't really think it's just growing on trees. Like I think that, I mean, we'll get to the crowdfunding. I think crowdfunding is wonderful and it's a very important, powerful resource, but it is, a, I think some people think, oh, I'll do my crowdfunding campaign. I'll just get money, but it takes so much work. It's a lot of work, six months of work in pre-advance, you know it. Right, exactly. It's so much work and, it, and also that you can't just keep tapping that tree. It's like not an endless tree. I think it's a perennial, not an annual, or the opposite, an annual, not a perennial. Well, you have to figure out a new base, right? Like with the launch of your first movie, you're like, okay, I used my inner base, right? Mm. And now that I have this other thing created and it's live, I can show it. I can take it to another different base, which is another set of investors. So you go to a different work, but that takes time to figure out how to reach that network. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't have that time because Yeah, and maybe that's hard. not even what I'm good at. Like I am a creative. I mean, I you know, all independent filmmakers I think that make it most anyway have a business side to them as well. I've mm -hmm. rarely seen the artist who's only an artist. Uh, and that's, you know, part of success is I, one good example is an Aziz Ansari type because I remember when I was doing stand up and he was doing stand up, he was younger than me and um, he's gotten I think he's a great talent and but when he was just starting out I mean he was pretty fresh his he wasn't as refined as he is now but he got successful very quick and early because he did have a business savvy mind and he got himself aligned like one of his first big things was this show Human Giant and he aligned himself with two comedians who had been in the scene for longer and they had all these connections and he made a lot of smart career moves and now he has his own show and I think that He's a good example of a comedian who had a business mind, and that's why he's successful, in addition to his talent. Well, my question that I always had with Aziz Ansari, and I think he's brilliant, and I love his show, but I wonder if he had to work on the side to pay his bills while he was doing all of it, because that uh, makes a huge difference. If you have some kind of a network helping yeah. you work on your projects, because for women, it's like you're running around, you're being a boom operator, and that takes mm -hmm. away time from making contacts, right? And Absolutely. That's what, that's what all the position of women are in. Nobody's going to fund us, nobody's going to give us money, and we're not going to grow. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I had meetings with several potential investors in my movie and people who said they would give me money, and ultimately they just wasted my time and just wanted dinner, and at the end of the day weren't prepared to write checks. I don't know why they took my time and yeah. said that they would write the checks. Perhaps they just wanted attention. But I had that happen to me several times over, so it, was, it became very clear to me that I couldn't rely on someone else to help make the movie. I had to make it myself. It's also how I was raised, but 
I will say there are people who helped me make this movie, but they were not people with power and money. It was people who were like young people who want to learn about filmmaking, so they PA'd for the film for free. Or one of my producers who started on this job with almost no money and kept working on it with almost no money because for her it was meaningful to have a first feature as a producer. And you know, there's just a lot of people who gave time and effort and heart to the movie but not money and not, not like, you know, big fancy things that are the ingredients to how most films are made. So it's, it's always interesting, right? I realized that like, don't take everybody out to dinner, value your time and value dinner time. Absolutely. You know, I have a friend who is in a married couple, like her husband works in the music industry and she's a fashion designer and she's a wonderful, loving person. And when I was in New York, she said to me, early on and it has been really good advice you know heather you can't say yes to everyone like everyone can't have your time you have to say no to people and i have kept that with me so you know you don't feel guilty yeah. uh and that was very helpful especially when i sort of had more of an online presence when i became a blogger i had a lot of people writing and being like oh can we meet can we meet and then and that was pre-facebook now the world is used to strangers being able to reach you but at first it was a new thing and it was very helpful to have that advice then when I was a blogger because if people, people want to talk to me about something I give them 10 minutes on FaceTime or Google Hangouts that's and nice that's and then I go that's it if it's really important call me and then we do it yeah. I don't have to go anywhere my time is super not wasted now my next question is and this is a really big question right and where do we start why are there so few female directors working in Hollywood when we know they're all going into school and there are 50% ratios in film schools? Yeah. And why isn't Hollywood hiring that many female directors aside from Wonder Woman or Patty Jenkins? Oh yeah, there's exceptions. Some women are hired and they get their projects funded. And it's so funny because I hear people saying things to me like, oh, it's a great time to be a woman director. Uh, I actually have a lot of insight on this. I did participate in a diverse director program where we talked about it a lot, but because I work on TV every day, pretty much, uh, I know how it works. So there's the TV director game, then there's the film, the feature film director game. Feature film is a shorter answer. When you invest money in a feature film and a feature film is made, it's a lot of money in a short amount of time. And anyone who's going to invest in a movie wants to mitigate their risk and they want to hire someone who is proven and not a risk. So for example, it's easy for you to hire Catherine Bigelow because she has proven success. It is rare that a Catherine Bigelow gets their big break or gets their first funding, that's the thing. And I think that, for example, Jordan Vote Roberts directed an indie feature that was once called, I forget, they changed the title of it, it was like the something of summer. He has now directed this big Kong movie and that was this multi-million dollar project. They invested in him and hired him as a director, not knowing if he was capable of handling this budget. It was successful. Their risk was a reward. I don't see that happening often or much at all for female directors. So everyone gets their, I mean, Spielberg got his big break somewhere. And people do see men as directors. They see them in these leadership roles. They seem like it. They walk on, I mean, when I walked on stage as a stand-up even, I could feel the feeling from the crowd of like, oh, this girl's not gonna be very funny. And then it's on you to prove them wrong. And when you walk on set as a director, you, especially a woman director, everyone's gonna look at you like, oh God, this again. So as a person who works in TV, you have several episodes per season and you typically have multiple directors per TV season. 
TV is more the writer and producer's medium than the director's medium, although in some uh, some television shows are more auteur-like. So, for example, Big Little Lies, I think it had the same director for the whole season. Uh, but anyway, they, they hire the producers and writers who own this, hire their directors for the season. And really how it works, this is exactly how it works. They make the list of the directors they want, and then they make a separate list of the women and a separate list of the people of color. Sometimes it's, you know, crosses over, but rarely. And what I mean to say by that, the most important takeaway, is the people that they want are automatically going to be white men, almost, almost always. Unless you're a Melissa Rosenberg, the EP of, and showrunner of um, Jessica Jones, and you have a mandate of saying, let's hire all women. Awesome that that happened, for one, this is a side note. Awesome that that happened. Thank you to her because she just gave every woman that's being hired on that show now has something added to her resume. I will say though that none of the women hired on that show are people getting a break because she still has the same risk that she has to worry about that all these people, each day of production costs thousands of dollars. Every minute costs money because we're paid hourly. So it's a risk every time you put someone in there, they need to know what they're doing. So I know from someone who works on Jessica Jones that they were considering a director and they were debating her and one of the issues was, well, she's only done network, she's never done cable. This show feels more like cable, maybe we won't hire you. So it's not enough to be a female director, it's not enough to say we're hiring female directors, there still is a super high standard. And another thing I'll say is that female TV directors tend to be a lot older. Now. There seems to be this weirdness, right? Sometimes it's the female directors aren't the best ones for the season. Uh, they seem to be unwilling to consider younger indie film directors to find people from indie film to bring them in. I don't know why, it's very frustrating, but you see a lot of older directors. And some people age, well, t directing is a difficult set of skills and there's only things, certain things that come with time and doing and hands-on experience, but some people that our directors are not very good um, and they just keep getting hired and it's like well this person has this on their resume we're just going to keep hiring them over and over again without them improving sorry this is a very long answer but um all i know is this i may well get hired to direct television even though i'm part of this like diverse directors program and i keep hiring some people do multiple of these programs i'm applying to other studios that have them i may or may not get them um, I can do them all I want. I can talk about them all I want. I can shadow direct. That seems like a good thing to shadow a director. However, at the end of the day, they're not going to hire me with no other episodes under my belt. For me personally, I think I need to sell a show as a creator and have that power to get hired. The, another project I'm working on right now, I am co-writing with someone who ended up starring in my feature. Her name is Ying Yang Lee. We're writing a series together as co-writers and she's more interested as an actress. It's for her to star and for me to direct. We want to sell this series. Perhaps that's my first TV directing job. That's not indie. I directed an indie TV pilot, but you know, as far as a studio or big budget project, I haven't had that yet. And maybe some indie thing will hire me, but it's all about, you know, it's too risky for them to hire you if you don't have TV shows under your belt. Maybe they'll hire you from, you had some like huge Sundance hit or something. That can happen. Um, I have another friend who was directing episodes of um, Narcos and he had directed uh, a film called Mano Sucios that did very well at Tribeca and it took place in Colombia. That television show took place in Colombia. He made sense to them as having that experience and background and what his work was similar to that. If that happens for female directors, 
that's great. It might happen. It might. <laughs> this is the long-winded answer of how that all works is, is risk. And you are seen as riskier as a female director. I, and also, you know, you walk on the set around a bunch of big guys and they're going to be like, all right, what's she got to show us? Um, another thing I will say, too, is we discussed in the Diverse Directors Program, from the perspective of the crew, someone say, oh, well, someone, you know, if you get hired and you're like an affirmative action hire, are people going to think down on you? Maybe, but at the end of the day, all they want is for you to be good. The crew just wants to have a good day. They want to be communicated to well. They want you to know what you're doing. So the, the number one tool to fight sexism is to be good. However, there is an access issue with being good. Someone has to give you a chance to have experience and exposure. I do recommend, though, if you want to direct, get your ass on set in one way or another, because too many indie filmmakers want a job on a big budget thing, but they are not working on it. Being in crew or in, in some way, get your butt on that set, whether you want to act or, or whatever it is. Sometimes actors make transitions into directing like an Angelina Jolie. They've certainly been on set and a part of it. And, and I would recommend, well, Angelina Jolie doesn't need that many recommendations, but for her, for her to like be on a production, not as an actor and be sitting in a chair, she may have done this already, uh, would probably be beneficial to her as a director, so. So my, my thoughts. <laughs> Those are great thoughts because I think about it too. You know, like how can we change the ratio? And is it about women coming together and creating their own collective and sponsoring their own movies that support each other and hiring each other and going, you know what, we're going to have a festival. We're going to craft on our own films. We're going to create our own network. And we are just going to help lift each other up because I don't think there's enough of that happening. There's all I agree. This talk happening. It's so many talk and there's so much articles. To me, the real change will come in a much bigger picture way, which is women having money and power. The more women out there earning, the more power they will have. It is still the case that men write the checks. It is still the case that men uh, work at whatever studios or corporations that have all the money to allow women to be hired. Like there is a man hiring us, whether it's a Wonder Woman movie and deciding to hire Patty Jenkins, there was a man involved in that decision. If women aren't CEOs, they're not high rollers, money equals power. I mean, it's the same thing for people of color. But then you get into the conversations where you go, you know, all those men have wives and all those wives have access to their wallets and they're donating to causes and they're writing checks to charity, but they're mm. not supporting other women in film, but they're on set, you know? So there's another There are some. I mean, there's Melissa Sil... What, is it Melissa Silverstein? Is that her name? I'm, no, 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 no. Ellison. Megan Ellison. I have totally wrong <laughs> Megan Ellison is a super accomplished female producer who has invested in countless uh, films that have gone to the Oscars. And she's someone I think inherited family money. It might have been, I have, I might be totally wrong because I'm not Googling right now, but it might be like Microsoft money or something. And uh, she has become a huge force in Hollywood. So yeah, maybe, maybe there's some, I mean, wives generally, you know, and, and it, I do resent the idea that like, women attaining power through husbands, not on their own, but if that's how the economy is now, that's how the economy is now. Uh, but it is a widespread thing of like access to opportunity has its ha is hand in hand with money. And so women need to be hired for jobs throughout our economy, throughout, you know, the world. Well, we're on set, women are on set, but we're in admin roles. We are the script supervisors. We are the everything you can possibly imagine. Yeah. But in the power positions. Yeah. I mean, even in camera department, I typically will. I mean, there are female camera operators and first ACs, 
but it usually I don't see the I mostly see women as second ACs or loaders like that. There's like a whole hierarchy. Just even in camera, I rarely get to see a female camera mm -hmm. operator. Well, cameras are really heavy to lift too. So as a uh, camera operator, sometimes you got to do some, like it re does require physical strength. I I disagree with that. I I don't think it's an issue. I I don't at all think it's an issue because the second ACs are dealing with the second ACs are doing all the heavy lifting, like the tripods and whatever, and so. Uh, I don't think that, and especially with um, digital cameras, I don't think there's actually a physical barrier Interesting. Okay. in camera. When you're doing a running scene and then you have to carry it, but then you can get a guy to carry it if you're but doing a running scene. No, 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 no. Women have the, the physical ability to do all those jobs. It's not an issue. I, I mean, I'm, you're talking to someone who's an operator. I'm a boom operator. Right. I do something physically challenging. I lift heavy equipment. I carry a boom. There is no... What the job requires is difficult for both male and female bodies. It's anything that is really that heavy, there's machines for it, like cranes or whatever. Like there's not, I mean, we put the camera on a crane technically. If something is too hard for a woman, it's likely too hard for a man. So I don't think that that's true. Interesting. Good. Yeah. Good to know. Um, so you just completed post production on your first comedy feature, Inside You. You've crowdfunded the campaign. Do you have any advice for people fundraising and crowdfunding? Yeah, um, for crowdfunding, I think you have to be prepared to spend a decent amount of time and you always need to do research and look up what are typical things. Like I looked up, oh, it takes about a month. It's recommended to have a month to run your crowdfunding campaign. Um, and just be really prepared with all of the components you need, your video and the information you're giving and just be prepared to suck up your pride when you're reaching out to people and, and that it takes work every single day of going, going above and beyond, getting the word out about your campaign. It's very annoying. I would say avoid, you're gonna get solicited once you put a campaign out there by people being like, I work for a company and I can help you get all of these, I can get, help you get things and if you give me money, I'll promote your thing. I mean, that stuff, I find that what they do is they like spam your contacts with these generic messages, which I don't think work that well. I mean, I, I would avoid that and just be prepared to do a lot of work and know it's, and know that you have to go into it prepared, like talking to people sort of ahead of time saying, do you th have a sense that there's people out there who might give a lot of money? Mm -hmm. So um, the next question is that knowing sound design gives you an edge on other directors. Sound can make or break a production from the music score to the extra footsteps to the sound of rain, music helps set the tone of a film. Do you have any advice when it comes to sound design for people? Yes, I do. Uh, first and foremost, hire a good location sound person who, has, who you feel you can communicate well with. Interview them. Make sure they have experience. Red flags are if they don't own their own equipment. Sound people should own their own equipment. And know that they're important. And director's really basic tip, don't shoot. If you're doing multi-camera shoots, don't do wides and tights at the same time. That's very bad for sound. It's also bad for a lot of other departments, but just, yeah. Don't do wides and tights at the same time, separate them out. And then as far as the sound design and how sound tells a story, an important thing to just think about is that sound is a reflection of our psychology and it is an incredibly powerful storytelling tool. And it's all about, in many ways, what you want the audience to be paying attention to. For example, if someone's walking, if you see a sidewalk full of like 100 people, you just wanna hear the footsteps of the one person who the story is about and not the others. And sound is so much about choosing what not to hear and choosing what to hear and use it to call attention. If someone is in a scene and they're interacting with a story important prop, let us hear that prop. 
make I mean obviously make sure the dialogue is technically clear etc etc don't rely too much on ADR especially not a tender moment don't stage a tender moment near a highway because you're not gonna you're gonna have to ADR the whole thing but yeah just remember that sound is the psychology you're imitating what's in a person's mind some sounds that you layer in like you might ask yourself what does stress sound like and you layer those sounds in like you weave them in sort of like a beautiful background way and it's all about well what would anger sound like what does peacefulness sound like sometimes all backgrounds drop out and get quiet when something important is happening um yeah but sound, just know that sound is a very important tool to truly connect you to characters and story and feelings and i guess just don't neglect it so what is the sound of a female director trying to get into the door of hollywood what does that sound like uh, i think it's like grunting and like uh, ah, <laughs> clawing someone like someone give me a glass of water no i mean i'll get my glass of water myself no it's a it's the sound of grunting probably and groaning i i think that's kind yeah. hot <laughs> yeah, it, it, as, as, you know, women are quite famous for the more we struggle and fight, the cuter we look, so I don't know. <laughs> oh okay, so I've got two more questions. The mm -hmm. first one, which we kind of started talking about, right? Um, how do we create a real network of women and film directors and actors and producers who form a mega production company together, working together to help each other projects get completed? I think that answer starts at the top with money. I think that women with money or power need to be persuaded because without money, you have no power. You just have a bunch of people raising their hand, but no one to call. Like it's still a man that's going to call on you. So I do think money is um, unfortunately a really important part of it. Second of all, I guess I suppose organization, uh, whether it's like a database of great people that you bring together. One thing I will say is that people have this trend of us of asking women to do things being like i'm being charitable i want to hire women but i don't have any money and i've had that a lot as a sound person and as a director like i'm not desperate i still want to do good work and i am in demand i am believe it or not just because i'm a woman i'm in demand now i'm in demand as a sound person i have a certain rate it is frustrating though to get asked to do things that have no budget so again yeah if the person at the top has money then perhaps you know you have something going, but if we keep working for men and they're the ones on top of the glass ceiling, you know, it's an issue. And so I, I think that something needs to happen at the top and then we can all flourish. So I had a thought too, actually, I didn't have this when I was writing these questions yesterday, but as I'm sitting here with you, I was just going to say, we can just ask women to email us and we can start it too. Absolutely. I mean, a couple years ago, I met with a web designer about this very thing, which is I want to make a database of women who are excellent at what they do, and it could be a vetted database of people. So it's not just like for beginners, it's, hey, these are excellent female architects. These are excellent female camera people. These are, ex so that there's, it's easy to find. So and some people have started database like this. Like there's some database I think called Directed by Women, and it's a database of female directors. As to whether or not anyone's using them or looking at them, I'm not sure. I'm sure one thing that would benefit it is to have maybe like reels or examples on the websites. I do think a lot of stuff still happens in person, handshaking. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, like I said, I, I think that no matter how many contacts I have, I'm working on a show right now doing sound where I think I'd be the perfect fit as a director because the, kind, the subject matter and that it's a comedy and I think it's so funny. But all the directors on that show, male, there's been one woman so far this season, I mean, they all have gray hair. It's an older person's game and maybe I'll get there. 
I can't get there without getting hired in the first place though. I need that big break. I'll, I'll keep creating it for myself, indie film wise. I hope that I have another feature film that I've written. I hope that I get that financed, <laughs> you know? Um, well, I've got a crowdfunding platform. So I'm yeah. like, you know, I'm looking to finance things. And then in the fall in Bushwick, I'm throwing together a really humongous festival in like a 10,000 square foot space for women entrepreneurism and diversity. And I want to have a film component the night before where we screen features by uh, women and diversity groups. So that's exactly it. It's you are the woman saying, like calling on people. You're the woman providing opportunities, creating events, creating what is not there. And that's that's such a huge part of the and answer. And that just bopped into my head because we just started this festival a week ago. We just got the space. We just figured out the film component maybe like three days ago because we want to bring together entertainment, tech funding, and uh, investors. Just all those worlds that are having separate conversations right now. You know, you've got the Women's March, you've got Indigenous Women Rising, you've got Black Lives Matter. There are a lot of things happening, but mm. every, nobody's working together. Yeah. Nobody's working together. Well, so you realizing that and you, you're doing something about it, and that's, that's the key. I'm trying, but you know, you need everybody else. It's like you're, you, I can build a sandbox, right? Mm -hmm. And I can build a dream, but I can't. A dreamy dream alone is just a dream. A dreamy dream together with yeah. others is reality, and Yoko Ono first said that. And I think that's the Beautiful. truth. You know, you can't have a dream with just one person. Mm -hmm. So we just need a lot of people to email either Heather and I and figure out a way to create cool stuff together. Well, the essential thing about the dream is that it's not just in your head. You are doing this. Like, you're doing the work. But you're doing the work. I know, thank and there you. And there are other women and there are yeah. other, they're just other people, not just yeah. women. Like, we want to include men. We're not saying men don't do it. We're just saying, oh, hey, sure. you're eating a cookie. Can we have a bite of that cookie? We yeah, absolutely. Eat the whole cookie. We just want a bite. I have many male collaborators. It's not that. I, I do make. Uh, it's. I did a short film with Sarah Benincasa, who's a female writer author um she wrote it and started it and i directed in it and she also produced it and she remarked about our crew she's like you know our crew is very diverse there's lots of people of color and women i was like oh i just hired the best people and i didn't actually think of it it was just this is who i think is the best people maybe i'm biased towards that but uh and maybe it's the fact the fact is that these people are just out there they're out there everybody's yeah, out there exactly they just need opportunities and they need people to connect them so yeah um you can find me on Dream Nation. You can say hello here. <laughs> you can find Heather at heatherfink.com and her email is there. And uh, my final question is, what is your dream as an adult? As an adult, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm going after it hard. It's I want to write and direct comedy. I want to write and direct it in any and every iteration that I can, whether it's film or television. More immediately, God, if I could have anything right now, I want this other screenplay I wrote to be financed. I really do. It's, it's like an internet apocalypse story. It's a sci-fi comedy, and I've been trying to get it funded, financed for a while. And I think if I get name actors attached to that, if I can get name actors attached to that, that movie will get made. Do you want to talk about it a little bit more? Because you've got a podcast to talk oh, about. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I'm calling it right now HTTP 404. I might just call it 404. That's like, you know, the famous error message. Mm -hmm. But it's basically in a world where um, there's a big digital apocalypse, internet apocalypse. This one woman who's an engineer thinks she knows what the answer is. It takes place in New York City, um, and the answer lies on Montauk, which is where a real place called Ham Camp Hero lies, where there's this crazy looking old radar tower. You can Google the Montauk radar tower, but it essentially involves these, this group of friends getting from New York to Montauk 
in an analog way. It's a sci-fi comedy about a group of friends on an adventure to save the internet. And I want to get that financed. That sounds amazing. I think so. I think lots <laughs> it's of people fun. love the internet and they love adventure. They so. do, yeah. And it's a pretty wild adventure comedy. Heather, thank you so very much for being on the show. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast, it's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love, share it with your friends, have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.